I, I want to be held accountable for what I'm doing. You know, this may sound like an, an exaggeration, but it was like the 9-11 of my career and certainly of making kombucha. Jesus is smart. This idea of income inequality, that always strikes me as a very, it's a deceptive term, income inequality. Well, let's flip it around. It comes from outcome inequality. Hello, welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here by... Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. Yogi Poliwol. And so uh, this week we're talking about, well, we've got a bit of a follow-up to our WeWork episode. We did an episode on Adam Newman and WeWork, and uh, it destroyed the company. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> we were all short the stock, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. our master plan played out perfectly. That's right. Um, but yeah, so we recorded an episode where we all thought WeWork was about to launch an IPO in September, and we were like, hey, this is a giant Ponzi scheme, and then everyone else was also in agreement with us, and they had to push back their uh, IPO. Yes, our Death Note style of podcasting finally worked. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I mean, it, it begs the question, you know, uh, WeWork, how does something like that actually get into the public markets? It was pretty bad strategy to uh, tank the company before they went public as a, in, in terms of a shorting strategy. <laughs> Where there's no way to actually short them. <laughs> we tried our best. You yeah. know. We didn't work together. Look, I'm an ideas man. I, I count on you guys to be the execution man. <laughs> I'm just angry at you guys because we didn't figure out how to short it. <laughs> Um, but no, it begs the question: How does a company like WeWork, which has no conceivable, had no conceivable way to make money, had right. a, the ridiculous forty-seven billion dollar valuation, had like something, uh, 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 something like forty-seven billion in obligations and seven billion or so mm-hmm. in actual mm-hmm. income? Mm-hmm. Four, Wife, that's cousin of Gwyneth Paltrow, yes. pushing uh, goop propaganda to their co- employers and right. employees. It has the CEO selling the trademarks uh, back to the company itself, sell, uh, <laughs> renting buildings back to the company. Of just clear self-dealing all over the place. And the question is, how does a company like that even get to the public market? And that is the subject of today's episode, which is we're talking about Masayoshi-san and his company, SoftBank. Mm-hmm. Um, Masayoshi-san is a Japanese uh, businessman, I believe the second richest man in Japan. Um, <clears throat> he's worth, according to Forbes, as of November 2019, $18.6 billion. Right. And we'll, we'll kind of talk about today, he's done a lot of different things that we don't have time to get into all of, but I do want to follow up on the WeWork story and talk a little bit about Uber, something we haven't really talked about on this podcast. Um, but I guess it's more, maybe we've talked more generally about the current tech bubble that we're in. Right. We're almost, we're in the second tech bubble, I think a lot of people would agree, sure. after the first one being, of course, the dot-com crash. And Masayoshi-san is actually the person who inflated both of those mm-hmm, bubbles, mm-hmm. is how he became an $18.6 billion uh, He's man. filled with hot air. He's been variously, the almost the wealthiest person in the world in the lead-up in 1999 and 2000, right before the crash. Mm. Uh, he was briefly, he said, worth more than uh bill gates for about three days yeah, so it's mm. worth about was it 80 billion dollars yeah or so 78 in, to, in today's dollars oh yeah, yeah. actually no and then yeah and then no, that's the, nominal right and uh he has the record for losing 
the most net worth <laughs> due to a fall in the That's stock right. market of about seventy billion. So he lost seventy billion on paper. Right, and uh, I believe he had eight billion to spare. So even though he lost, Aww. he was yeah, he was yeah. a <laughs> lean year in the Sun household. Yeah. But the SoftBank, the uh, business he started, is, uh, I believe, the 36th largest uh, company, according to Forbes, top 1,000 companies. It's bigger than uh, Amazon, bigger than Coke, uh, bigger than uh, a lot of things. And uh, the reason is because they're great at inflating uh, other companies. Right. So he's just recently launched, as of 2017, he launched what is called the Vision Fund, uh, which is the largest um, private investment fund in history up to this point. Mm -hmm. It's a $100 billion investment fund. And we should note that $45 billion of this comes from the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, um, which I think is a funny story in the sense that he talks about, uh, uh, my, uh, Masayoshi-san talked about, you know, hey, the singularity is coming. We got to invest in the singularity. And everybody was like, okay, I'm not giving you any money. <laughs> and then he meets this dumbass who runs Saudi Arabia and takes a 45-minute meeting with him. And he's like, yes, yeah. I am giving you a billion dollars for every minute of right. this presentation. <laughs> he's and, like, I, well, I mean, we've got money to spare. Our, our bone saw budget. Even though the largest of any country in the world is only about one million, <laughs> they're pretty cheap. Right. So, like we left off, like WeWork in September was gearing up to do an, its IPO. Obviously, that didn't happen. Hmm. It at one time had a valuation of about forty-seven billion and fell to about fourteen billion after investors got after it was forced to do public filings right. for the IPO beforehand. Oops. And people were able to see that it wasn't making money. Yeah. And also it had a load of debt. Right. And Oops. it actually turns out that like as we turn our attention to Masayoshi and the Vision Fund, the Vision Fund, which is about $97 billion right now, is about 40% debt, the rest of, the rest of it being equity. Nice. And that's, which is like absurdly high for a yeah. fund of this size. Right. And so it's like the... Even the money behind it mm -hmm. is also pretty precarious, and it's it's sustained a lot, a lot in large measure just by sort of like this sort of geopolitical equilibrium that uh, Masayoshi is in with the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, and um, some of their some of the IPOs that they want to get into. Right, right. And so we could talk a bit about more about it later on in in this episode, but um, the Vision Fund is set to receive some more money from the the IPO in December of Aramco mm -hmm. which is the state the Saudi state oil led oil company it's one of the largest companies in the world it uh, is, it's being valued at about 1.7 trillion dollars wow. and it uh, last year it made about it netted about 111 billion dollars mm -hmm. in income off 315 billion in revenue so uh, it's just and this is a pretty weird decision for a forward-looking person like Masayoshi, who's all about like the future of mankind, living in harmony with machines and stuff. When we're in the midst of like a climate catastrophe, <laughs> and he's willing to accept billions and billions and billions <laughs> of dollars of one of the leading causes, yeah, of our climate crisis. I feel like this is the most amount of money we've talked about on the show in terms of uh, the amount of moving capital. Yeah, for just yeah for sheer capital flows, this might be our, our our largest amount we've ever covered. If you're Masayoshi rich, the the climate catastrophe thing doesn't affect you as much. Like I can, he he bought Boston Dynamics, and I I think his idea of the future is like 
all right, well, there's going to be less people. <laughs> but that's fine. I'll have a robot dog. <laughs> I like to imagine, like, when outfitted he... with a machine gun. <laughs> I like to imagine when he was pitching MBS on like to get the forty-five billion, he right. was like, "Okay, look, the future bone saws; those are in the past. The future <laughs> lasers. We're going to invent lasers that can cut the head off Washington Post journalists." You know, now that I think about it more, I do think he believes that will implant brains into robots in the near future because his entire view of the singularity is a hundred percent like we're going to work harmoniously with it, but. You would think that he'd be like, wait a second, there's not going to be enough air to breathe. And his thought, it's like, we won't need air by then. How many times do you think he's watched Evangelion <laughs> and took the wrong <laughs> message from it? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, So uh, this Vision Fund, again, launches 2017, $100 billion fund, uh, largest private wealth fund, in his, largest active investment fund, I mm-hmm. should say, in history. Um, they deployed about 40% of that $100 billion within the first year. Right. So like... Again, we say, you know, he's inflating this second tech bubble, and we'll, we'll briefly cover what he did with the first tech bubble. But when you have the largest private investment fund in history dumping literally billions into WeWork and Uber and all these other companies, Slack, among others, right. um, you know, the, the dumping billions of dollars. So, of course, that causes inflated valuations. Because you have a, a dumbass known by the name of uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who just like you sit down with him for forty five minutes and talk about how like robots are going to start like <laughs> killing your dissidents for you, <laughs> and you can automate the production and co- save on labor costs there, and he'll just throw his fortune away because he's a fucking idiot who inherited it and has no idea what he's doing, and then this creates uh, artificial valuations. Yeah, we're doing this the wrong way. Like if we were smart, we wouldn't have anything to do with. Pay- Patreon. We just spend all our time working on our elevator pitches for <laughs> just dumb genocidal dictators uh, running up a forty billion dollar debt and then running it through the Panama paper or through the Panama organizations before everything collapses. Well, I think that's the end of the show. I, I don't know. I don't see any reason why we've got to continue doing this. Uh, Andy's certainly hit the nail on the head there. But there is, I, I do want to credit, there's a defunct podcast called Slaying the Unicorn. They recorded like four episodes and they dropped off. But they talked a, a little bit about SoftBank. And I did just want to credit them because they said something that I thought was very insightful where they said uh, most venture capitalist firms, which in this case the SoftBank Vision Fund is operating mm-hmm. as such, they essentially operate as glorified PR shops. Right. Where it's like, okay, so here's my investment, and now I'm going to be a PR firm for this investment to try and get other fucking suckers to be like, this is the future. And so, you know, you listen to all these interviews with uh, Masayoshi Son, and maybe we'll play a little bit of some of them, but he always talks about, again, the singularity, the idea that the robots are coming, uh, so all of my investments are in, I'm going to control every single part of the robot ecosystem. Right. And he bought um, this this British company called... Arm. Yeah. It's like the Matrix, but I get to be the boss. <laughs> still still struggling with where WeWork fits into this, right, robot, right. this robot future, personally. <laughs> That's uh, where they're going to put the pods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they need housing for the robots, so that's where WeWork yeah. came in. It does seem like that was the only reason why Masayoshi... Well, we, we'll get into this a little later, but everyone that uh, Masayoshi dumps you know, a dickload of money into, he just talks about their confidence in the meeting. It's rarely about what the actual idea is or the execution of it, and it's more like he literally talks about Jack Ma being like, he had a passion in his eyes. <laughs> Vibes, bro. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, like, and that's so his most successful investment was Alibaba right. in uh, two, the year two thousand. And we talked about this a bit on the Jack Ma episode. No, year <laughs> two thousand. Uh, I'm just not gonna say that date anymore. <laughs> Nothing ever happens in that year. It's always 1999 or 2001. And the from year now after on. 1999, one year before 9/11. <laughs> <laughs> But we talked about it on the Jack Ma episode. Um, uh, Masayoshi Son gave um, Jack Ma $20 million in um, this uh, aforementioned year. (laughs) And uh, as of the IPO, uh, Alibaba IPOs in 2014, that $20 million is worth $60 billion. It's one of the, uh, I think, if not the one of the largest returns on investment in history. And the thing about that is he entirely just said, I met Jack Ma. He had no business plan and no idea what he was doing, but I liked the look in his <laughs> eyes. Yeah. He so, had strong eyes. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's is what he says like, in the interview. Yeah, yeah. And, and so this is when we talk about uh, Masayoshi-san, and on some level you can't help but kind of uh, like the guy, even if he is an evil person or part of an evil system, et cetera, et cetera. But this is a guy who made his fortune by walking into the casino and putting it all on, you know, 12 black or whatever. Well, I think it's more that he puts the money on all of the numbers. Like in the roulette wheel of business, he goes, I need money on all of this. And then the ones that come back, he uses that to double down and also rebet on the table again. It's actually similar to Warren Buffett. So he has mm-hmm. like Buffett would have like a few in in one sector of companies. Right. He'd have a few. Well, number one, have enough capital to do sort of like a scatter shot of investing. Right. But have like a few sort of ones that you're really psyched about and you devote more to. But you also sort of uh, play the whole board, sure. I guess, and um, try to try to dream up a few metrics to tell you like, oh, I should invest five hundred million this one. And then a smattering of millions in the other ones, but a few billion in these big players. Right, so I think right. will really make make my portfolio. Mm. And um, I guess just to to kind of go through the Uber and WeWork story, like again, we won't get to all the investments, but I think we should mention Uber and WeWork. Um, this Vision Fund uh, again uh, with forty five billion worth of Saudi Arabian money. So maybe this is like a very um, transgressive performance piece he is doing right, right. to like take funds away from the war in Yemen and, and dump them into dipshit startups in New York by fucking fail kids. Uh, but so he invests, uh, um, he buys. Let's see, according to a recent UN um, uh, paper on war crimes mm-hmm. in the war in Yemen, uh, coalition airstrikes uh, regularly target residential areas, markets, funerals, weddings, detention facilities, civilian boats, and even medical facilities, mm. uh, including several uh, Doctors Without Borders hospitals. Gotta, gotta keep innovating. Yeah. Well, once Boston Dynamics comes in, we can cut the cost in half on all that stuff. All right. I, I think that's really where uh, Masayoshi-san's coming from. Look, Ma- Masa knows that once there are robot nurses, that <laughs> Saudi won't be able to murder nurses anymore. <laughs> Um, but there have been 11 airstrikes <laughs> hitting civilian boats off the shores of Hidayah from November 2015 until May 2018, of which nine were reviewed and two investigated by the group of experts. Approximately 40 fishermen were killed or disappeared. It's worth noting that uh, Yemen is having a severe famine right now. And uh, in another incident uh, examined by the group in which coalition aircrafts targeted a boat carrying refugees... On uh, 17th of March, a total of 32 Somali refugees, including 11 Somali women and one civilian, were killed, and another 10 persons were reported missing, which means they probably drowned. Bummer. 
Anyways, this guy does a lot of innovating. You know, one thing I, we cut Sean off earlier about, but they did buy Arm, uh, the yeah, UK yeah, yeah. company, for I think $36 billion, if not slightly more Thir- than 32 that. I think. Yeah, and uh, Arm makes every chip in your phone or computer. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not your computer, but they have a large share of all of the chipsets in the world. Like the Vision, for the Vision Fund, it hasn't, it's been kind of a mixed record in terms of just raw investment performance. Mm-hmm. So like obviously Uber, Slack and WeWork are kind of dragging the entire operation down. But there have been some other, like some other areas he's had some success, like in biotechnology. Like there's this group called 10X Genomics and then also another one called Ver Biotech hmm. in, um, also in Europe. And they've been kind of gaining for a couple of years. But in the aftermath, like in the aftermath of Adam Newman and WeWork, mm. and like Masayoshi himself said of Newman, "quote We have created a monster." <laughs> 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 and um, I, li- I like how he has har- harsher words for that guy than the one doing a genocide <laughs> in Yemen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So nothing at all to say about Salman, but um, it this really spooked. I mean, this this got leaked to the press. And uh, it eventually spooked investors almost as much as, like, the initial WeWork, like, bad press. Hmm. And they started questioning, like, well, what about all these other tax companies that they're invested in that have, like, a charismatic founder right. and not much checks on their power within yeah. the company? So, like, there's another Indian startup called Oyo, mm-hmm. which, um, like, uh, investors in, in Japan actually were, like, really psyched about, but started pulling some money from just on, based off of the corporate governance structure mm. where it was just, like, the founder can do whatever he wants, basically. And so it caused um, SoftBank to kind of retool their requirements for startup mon- giving startup money to mm. these groups. And, like, so now they want, like, to have at least one board seat for SoftBank. Right. At least one independent director... Uh, a ban on super uh, super voting shares, so like shares that have more voting power than others on the board, and then they also want to limit how founders and like top senior managers uh, they can't have more than half the board seats collectively. Oh, really? So they're trying to like basically say, okay, we're we're reigning in control. There yeah. won't be any more Adam Newmans in our in our main in our main investments they're eliminating the fun ceos is what you're saying they're eliminating <laughs> the wild guns the mavericks yeah that's right guys monday afternoon happy hour is over <laughs> speaking of no checks on power um the saudi coalition has uh struck or er, has uh, launched airstrikes on clearly marked ambulances and on 11 june 2018 uh doctors without borders uh, reported that there was an airstrike on a new cholera treatment center. Again, the world's biggest cholera outbreak is occurring in Yemen due to starvation and uh, wow. regular bombing of uh, sanitation facilities, including uh, sewage and water treatment facilities. Um, it, even though uh, Doctors Without Borders had reported to the Saudi coalition on 12 separate occasions that it was a medical facility not to be targeted. So you're saying that... You know, he had forty-five billion to spare. I mean, with all of that prosperity, <laughs> you just you know might as well give the money away. Forty-five minutes, forty-five billion. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, and so now he's trying to. So they they kicked Adam Newman out of WeWork uh, after the fiasco, and mm-hmm. now they're they're trying to get it back under control. But they still are supposed to pay Adam Newman one point seven billion dollars for wow. running this thing into the ground. And the press reports are that they're trying to claw back some of that, <laughs> but we'll see <laughs> how much they end up just giving. He'd probably walk away with at least a billion dollars worth of just Saudi blood money, which, you know, hey, good for him. But um, Solid th- grift. Yeah, and, and so just to quickly do the Uber story here before we get into the actual biography of Masasan, um, they bought about, they're they Uber's largest single shareholder. They own about 15%. CNBC said that as of September 2019, they've taken about $600 million in losses on this. They made a, a $7.65 billion investment. Um, in early 2018, they were buying shares from existing uh, investors for 48.77 per share, uh, purchasing new shares for about $33. Uber, as of November 22, 2019, is trading at 29.50. <laughs> so they've lost a lot of money on that. They lost even more on WeWork. They own about 80% of WeWork. Mm-hmm. They put about 18.5 billion in this thing, and again, they were buying it at a 47 billion dollar valuation. <laughs> Which people are questioning if it's even worth seven billion, if it's even worth one billion. If you want to talk about the efficiencies of capitalism, take a look at uh, how well Uber is performing in the market and how much the top executives are getting paid. (laughs) Right. Like, so Uber did its IPO May 2019. It has lost one third of its value from that IPO. But uh, that didn't stop, you know, Goldman Sachs and all the other banks who were doing that IPO right. from uh, selling Uber stock to pension funds, 401ks, oh, wow. whoever the fuck. Yeah. So, you know, they've dumped, they've managed, uh, they weren't as successful at doing this with WeWork, but they did manage to dump Uber on the investing public when yep. it had no fucking way of making money. Fucking um, crooks. Yeah. And so, you know, that's kind of my thesis for SoftBank. It's like, you know, we talk about uh, Uber and WeWork and these other unicorn tech companies, and SoftBank is the uh, the hive cluster. Right. It is like, if this is the Aliens movie, this is where they are all coming from. Yeah. We have to uh, get up in orbit and nuke SoftBank from orbit. <laughs> and that's the only way to save the tech sector in uh, the globalized economy. Probably uh, not the best analogy when referring to... <laughs> The second richest man in Japan. <laughs> We're trying to uh, make the argument that he's on the side of war crimes. <laughs> no, he's Korean. Uh, well, he's Jap. We'll get into that. He is a uh, uh, Korean descendant Japanese. And Sean, Sean is a uh, Japanese nationalist and <laughs> believes that he is not an authentic yes. Japanese man. <laughs> Because of his Korean ancestry. No, this is not me. This is, uh, there's a term in Japan, uh, Zayanchi. Zayanichi? Zayanichi. The Zayanichi Japanese. And so this is a word that means temporary resident in Japanese, and it refers to Korean people. He's a third generation resident <laughs> of Japan, and his uh, the Japanese word for what he is is a temporary resident. <laughs> his three generations of families living in Japan. Uh, but yes, we, we we can get into that here. Though we should also mention uh, SoftBank also owns Sprint as of 2012. Right. They mm-hmm. uh, spent a lot of money on that. And also, as of the time we're recording this, uh, November 23rd, 2019, as of two weeks ago, about SoftBank reported their first quarterly loss right. for, I think, 14 years. Yeah. Because, you know, we mentioned this Alibaba investment. That's really been propping them up uh, in particular. But uh, so know. they've like they've had losses on paper and also in sales. Mm. 
and it finally got reflected in their quarterly report. On Friday, the Dow hit record highs, guys. <laughs> <laughs> we are in boom times. Nowhere to go but up. The the Sprint T-Mobile merger is also, I think, being uh, orchestrated by Masayoshi as well. Um, that I don't think it's gone through yet. The, he bought Sprint at a very low cost, and Sprint's like number three, uh, potentially number four. And then the T-Mobile merger with Sprint was, was supposedly about to happen, and then it got shut down, I believe. But uh, I don't know enough information about that. But the entire Sprint T-Mobile merger slash owning Sprint is all Masayoshi-san. Masa was like, I don't care how much it costs. You have to get me the Verizon ad guy. <laughs> $10 billion yeah, but that, like, for oh, the Verizon right, ad right. guy. That entire <laughs> campaign guys. is Masayoshi. Because Sprint was like, you know, running out of money. They were going to be bankrupt and, and out of a, a job. But uh, Masayoshi-san came in and picked them up. Hmm. All right, but um, I guess is there anything else we should kind of tell people to introduce him before we get into the chronological biography? He's a Leo. That's true. Uh, can I just cap off the week work? Of course, yeah, we should update our WeWork story. So, well, like, I think just, like, reading through the situation with the Vision Fund, Aramco, and WeWork is, like, uh, all of the problems that people brought up about WeWork Mm -hmm. uh, are present in the Vision Fund to, maybe to a lesser extent, but it's still there. Like, there's a mountain of debt, 40% of the portfolio that it's built upon with, uh, countries engaged in war crimes Mm. as of uh april 2018 nearly 17.8 million people in yemen were food insecure that's out of a country of 25 million people and uh, 8.4 million were on the brink of famine Healthcare facilities were not functioning clean water was less accessible in yemen uh, is still as i mentioned suffering from the largest outbreak of cholera in recent history with over 2 million cases so do you want like do you want should should we really be Pouring in ninety-seven million dollars, ninety-seven billion dollars worth of private funds into the some of it coming from the proceeds of companies that are directly responsible for the climate change, and also states responsible for mass mass war crimes in Yemen. Well, you know the the robot dogs aren't profitable yet, but they're still pretty cool. So it's nice that the Vision Fund is yeah, keeping well, Boston Dynamics. All right, we we haven't. They haven't innovated um, doctors without souls yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say the counterpoint is like, what if the vision funds? Uh, what if the vision fund fails, and then Saudi Arabia gets really mad at the people of Yemen? <laughs> like you thought they were doing a genocide before they lost their forty-five yeah. billion, but yeah. now they're pissed. <laughs> okay, it's like the woke. The woke interpretation is they're taking money away from the Saudi, the Saudi war effort. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I guess there's that. The vision fund fails and Saudi just starts nuking Yemen. <laughs> <laughs> what makes me really suspicious about like this oncoming crash is that whenever there's uh, like a stock market crash or just, you know, uh, an ep- economic uh, depression or whatever, mm-hmm. that money never really disappears. It just moves to the people who have like the best position. You know, for instance, in the last recession, obviously billionaires got way richer at the expense of everyone else. And I'm just wondering, like, whether this guy has like an ace in the hole to secretly profit off of it. Looking at what happened after the dot com, probably not because he clearly was the sucker in that arrangement. Well, he was just like he was so heavily exposed to the tech sector that like, you know, people like him are going to bite the dust. But they still have eight to ten billion dollars at the end of the day. Yeah. And other billionaires see it as a huge opportunity. The ones who aren't necessarily so much in right that's a short it and whatnot so like for them it's not really a recession at all yeah and, and the only thing they really have to do to stop the crash from occurring is stop being them 
Like, if he just was like, you know what, I'm good, I'm going to retire, there's a chance. I mean, like, it, it probably would burst, but it wouldn't uh, do it nearly at the rate it probably would at this point. Yeah. And, um, and, and you know, it is like Steve mentioned, is worth, we'll probably follow up on this at the end, but there is a possibility that, you know, SoftBank, uh, the Vision Fund itself, is WeWork on a much larger scale. Yeah. So, you know, if you thought, we talked about on the WeWork episode, that if WeWork goes under, like, the rental mm-hmm. office space market in New York and London would collapse. I mean, if you can imagine what would happen if the largest investment fund in history goes under, mm-hmm. you know. So, so that, like, it could be the case that, all right, WeWork... We work goes under. You thought you took care of the hive, but actually that was just a sub colony. <laughs> you haven't even found the queen yet. Right, yes. right, right. Is this Halo 2 where you have two guns? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And multiplayer too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Online multiplayer. Halo 2 introduced it. Right, it's it's like uh, StarCraft, where you think you uh, killed the first um, <laughs> right, hive right. cluster. Right, but really right. That was just an expansion. Yeah. You just yeah. got yeah. Zergrushed. <laughs> Um, but I guess we should start with the uh, chronological biography of Masa Oh, he is Korean, so I guess that works, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it, it, it applies. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Masa is born in um, 1957 in uh, Toso, Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like an island. Uh, yeah, the southern <laughs> island. No, it's it's a small town. It's like an island, uh, you know, in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> One of those rare Japanese islands. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's the southern island of uh, Kyushu. Kyushu. Uh, Kyushu. Uh, it's a town on the southern island of Kyushu. He's born there in 1957. Again, his uh, third generation uh, uh, Korean Japanese. His parents or his ancestors came from Korea three generations back from 1957. Um, and he was bullied as a child uh, because he was Korean. Apparently. Right. Uh, Japanese uh, uh, children in grade school threw rocks at him for being Korean. Yeah, and, and I read another story that uh, he grew up uh, needing to scavenge food from his from neighbors to feed his family, and he was in a like a cart pushed by his grandma that was for uh, like chicken shit essentially. So he grew up in uh, very very meager poverty, according to himself. Oh, I thought I thought you were saying he like grew up needing to harvest Vespian gas <laughs> in order to survive. <laughs> no, he literally like, in Yo, some of the articles. Is he a Zerg player though? <laughs> Zerg is the people's <laughs> is the people's race. Um, it like it was like they had to scavenge leftovers from other families. I feel to, like this uh, guy survive. is a toss player. Yeah, people don't talk a lot about how how completely and utterly devastated Japan was in the decades following the war economically yeah. even but then you know of course america poured money into it because it was a bulwark against communism mm. and it grew to become what it is now mm-hmm. it was like my family only had one pylon between all of us <laughs> <laughs> we had to scavenge we had to go fast forge expand <laughs> we had no choice um no actually but so uh, uh counter to yogi's story according to wired magazine uh, mm-hmm. i'm just going to quote from this he is not however a rags to riches story his father ran a thriving chain of pachinko parlors <laughs> at 16 uh masasan shipped off to california to learn english and eventually er- enrolled at uc berkeley in california so it's like clearly his family had enough money to send him to california to go right. to college there and- 
you laugh at Pichinko, but it's like really profitable. Oh yeah, and it's like a huge. Uh, it's actually a really large part of the Japanese economy. Actually, I heard that situations were uh, so dire that on uh, the thirty first of August, twenty seventeen, uh, the founder of the Yemen Red Crescent Society died because he couldn't obtain life saving treatment and needed that he needed um, in Yemen and could not travel abroad for such treatment because the Sanaa International Airport was closed to commercial traffic. It was closed to commercial traffic? Yeah, yeah. Like, people, like, were like, I'm going to go to Yemen for the holiday. You can't fly out of the airport. Oh, yeah. you can't fly. I got you. Yeah, even the, for, like, uh, life-saving medical treatment. The Saudis were doing a Dark Templar drop against civilians. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there's two people I want to mention that he, at the age of 15, inspired him immensely. Uh, one of them is uh, Sakamoto Ryoma, which, uh, Stephen, you were saying is a huge figure in Japan? It, yeah, he's one of, like, the most influential politicians in Japanese history. It uh, On uh, Ryoma's Wikipedia, the, the legacy of him talks about how he was a visionary who dreamt of an independent Japan without feudalism or the caste system, inspired by the example of the United States where all men are created equal. Um, Masayoshi-san read a book about him when he was 15, and it inspired him greatly. But he also was inspired by the founder of McDonald's Japan, Den Fujita, who... Uh, among other things, wrote the Jewish way of doing business. Uh, it was a it was a bestseller. Explained that Jews had taken over the business world and exhorted his readers to use Jewish business methods to become rich themselves. The book was also part autobiography in which Fujita drew parallels between anti-Semitism and the discrimination he himself faced because of his Kansai dialect. He also believed that Jews had settled in Osaka some 1,000 years ago, which was why people from the area were craftier businessmen. This sounds like investment strategies from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. <laughs> the long-lost chapter. It, I mean, it kind of, of is. portfolio management. So... Uh, you think that's why he gave Adam Newman $18.5 billion? <laughs> He's like, I read a book saying these people were crafty. In, yeah, Den Fujita in the book would say, like, you know, in business, the only justice is winning. Uh, then there is neither clean money nor dirty money. In a capitalistic society, all methods of making money are acceptable. So, I mean, a rich dad, poor dad, <laughs> international Jew dad. <laughs> You know, just a, a ruthless businessman. So there were, uh, I mean, there's evidence of some Jews in the 16th century in the area he's talking about. Oh, really? But not a thousand years ago. Sure, sure. <laughs> um, so Den Fujita was... Um, That's anti-Semitic, Stephen. <laughs> oh, sorry. Claiming there Is were no Jews in Japan <laughs> a thousand years ago. When did he set up McDonald's Japan? In In 1971 is when... He started his franchises in Japan, and he was quoted as saying, the reason Japanese people are so short and have yellow skins is because they have eaten nothing but fish and rice for 2,000 years. Uh. If we eat McDonald's hamburgers and potatoes for 1,000 years, we will become taller, our skin become white, and our hair blonde. So, you know, I took one biology class in college, and that <laughs> checks out. <laughs> so you think eating McDonald's will make you white? Yes, precisely. Um, so I can't wait till like 10 years from now we start seeing the first articles like why is life expectancy <laughs> declining in Japan has something changed in their diets so continuing with with uh, what Sean was saying with their family having money that uh, is pretty fucked up like <laughs> eat McDonald's it'll make you white yeah that's that's precisely what he's saying though and he was very successful doing it he had like a billion dollars after like I think about 10 years of being the J J Japanese McDonald's founder I'm loving um, it Masayoshi-san, as a 16-year-old, would call uh, Fujita's office every day, and then apparently... And ask him if he's loving it. <laughs> 
he wanted to have a phone call with them and then the secretary would be like no kid fuck off and so you realize the international the long distance phone calls were costing more than if you just flew there so he flew to where Fujita was and like basically forced himself into a meeting and Fujita was like I like your your moxie kid I'm and uh, <laughs> Masayoshi uh, asked him like what should I be focusing on and Fujita was like you should get into computers and the inspiration for him going overseas to uh, skin tone study and uh, race science <laughs> Uh, study the Jews, kid. Um, <laughs> what came from uh, Fujita, basically. And when uh, later on, we'll mention uh, Masayoshi starting SoftBank. Fujita was on the original board for SoftBank. Right. Back Fuji- to the bio. Fujita's like, I believe in two things: pink slime and a small cabal of international <laughs> bankers that control all world events, <laughs> and that we should emulate them. Um, yeah, so, you know, and that's the guy who, of course... The protocols of how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, of course, the guy that um, uh, Masa says inspired him. And, you know, like Yogi just said, he met with him when he was 16. And he says, learn English and don't go into the past industries. Don't go into, you know, hamburgers. Go into computers. That's the future. So Masa takes this advice to heart. Yeah, Fujita, uh, uh, one last thing about him. Like, he was a translator for the U.S. because he, he spoke English. And uh, just making everything anti-Semitic. <laughs> he like. And then he found out that computers make you Polynesian. <laughs> he um. He was like selling handbags at first. He was like import exporting handbags between the two countries, and then he realized like that's not going to work. So then he like he got tapped by McDonald's to be their uh, uh, ambassador for Japan, basically. Hmm. Uh, very interesting guy, Dan Fujita. There's an interview with Letterman and Fujita, and uh, it's like almost like scene by scene the same as the Pulp Fiction uh, what do they call this in, in what do they call it in Denmark <laughs> you know it's that same type of thing like mm. you guys have uh, Big Macs what do you guys call them uh, Big Mac <laughs> this is like <laughs> the entire interview between Letterman and Fujita hmm. yeah but so according to the New York Times his uh, Masa-san's grandparents came over from Korea and then his parents uh, lived in Japan again his uh, dad had the uh, pachinko uh, machine parlors um, and so they send him after he meets with the McDonald's CEO. He wants to go to California, learn English, learn the computer industry. So they send him out to California. He goes to high school out there for a bit. At uh, 16, he goes to the United States, mm-hmm. goes to high school, goes to UC Berkeley, gets a uh, economics degree in 1980 from UC Berkeley. Right. And um, uh, I read one where he, where he went to St. Mary's for two years and then transferred to UC Berkeley. I think so. I think that's correct. And then yeah. I read another thing that was saying that he finished high school in like three weeks. I'm like, not sure about that. Like I did like, see that. Yeah, though. it was like a clearly like propaganda thing where it was like he just was in high school for two weeks and was like, I'm just going to take the college test. Well, there's one thing I've realized that. about billionaire yeah. backstories is that they're not under oath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, I don't know. Do we have that drop of him saying, I invented things in five minutes? Mm-hmm. So he gives an interview to uh, David Rubenstein, who we did an episode on the Carlisle Group about, is like one of the most evil people in history mm-hmm. who just does a very boring interview show and makes dumb jokes about like, if my tie's not messy, how will people know it's me? <laughs> Which, like I was saying, you almost hope he worships Moloch and sacrifices <laughs> children because then the world makes more sense sure. if these evil people are not just like boring people making dad jokes. Um, but so he does, David Rubenstein does an interview show, and he interviews uh, Masayoshi Son, uh, Son, and uh, he asks him, you know, how did you invent all this stuff? What was your method? It's an invention, and I have to file a patent. If I get the patent, five minutes, if I focus, I can come some idea. I can make some idea. 
So I set alarm clock five o'clock, five minutes. And take, take, take. Uh, in five minutes, I said, come, invention, come, <laughs> come, right? <laughs> so I did that. And it worked. It worked. You invented a machine that helped people translate languages? Yeah. That one was the electronic dictionary. Okay. Yeah, and so this is him explaining. Wow, that so looks like shit. <laughs> he's in uh, a picture of it. He's at UC Berkeley, and he's like talking about uh, Masasan is talking about. I told my, you know, my friends, uh, you know, that we would hang out, and I would say, okay, I take five minutes every day, and I try to invent things. Right. You know? Yes. <laughs> he he shouts, "Come!" at the alarm clock come. until he invented an electronic dictionary. Come, come. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, not quite the real story. Would would that surprise <laughs> you? No. Sounds like me having sex with my girlfriend. So, so the real story. This is the electronic dictionary. He's talking about like his story is. I just again shouted, "Come!" at an alarm clock right. until for five minutes a day. Come invention. Come. <laughs> Until I just made an electronic dictionary. Uh, according to ARSTechnica.com, the, uh, the actual story is um, he met uh, Forrest Moser, F-O-R-R-E-S-T-M-O-Z-E-R, uh, who invented and patented the first speech synthesizer in 1974 um, and was a physics professor at UC Berkeley. Um, so he meets this guy, and basically... Uh, <laughs> uh, According to Moser, uh, Sohn had an idea for a translator that would pronounce the word that you were trying to translate and came back to ask me if I could help him build a prototype. Um, so it's just interesting to me where the story is generally, you know, Sohn, uh, Masa Sohn invented this. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they'll even say he co-invented this. But what really happened I was... I mean, he, with the depth of technical knowledge you get earning an economics degree... <laughs> <laughs> But just again, quoting from uh, this physics professor at UC Berkeley, the beauty of his idea was not to create a translator, but to sell it. His plan was to set up kiosks in airports so you can rent it and could say hello and other words in that language. He didn't know any electronics, but it was clear from the very beginning that he was an entrepreneurial genius. So what he actually, what he actually <laughs> did was, t was take some of his money and meet a uh, physics professor at UC Berkeley and was like, hey, if you invent this thing, I'll sell it. Right. And that's what they did. By 1979, he sold it to Sharp for about $423,000, which is just over a million dollars in today's money. Mm -hmm. So they split this, and this is um, not his first, but uh, his early fortune. Right. Because the other part is um, <clears throat> from this same uh, ARS Technica article. He says, while he's an undergrad at UC Berkeley, uh, Masasan imported early consoles of Pac-Man and Space Invaders and leased them to local bars and restaurants in Northern California. Um, the, this is because uh, Sohn's father ran a pachinko parlor uh, and had access to early arcade units. Uh, Sohn reportedly made his first million dollars through these arcade games. So, you know, his dad has the pachinko parlors. He gets early access to Japanese arcade machines. Mm -hmm. He can, you know, send them to his son on the cheap, and then Masa can sell them to California uh, bars and restaurants. You know what he says when uh, those arcade machines start shipping over to America? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he summons them. Um, but, you know, the point of this story is he makes, you know, about a million dollars in today's money off this translator that he gets his UC Berkeley professor to invent for him. <laughs> and uh, he gets his dad to send him arcade machines, which he then sells. 
Um, it makes another just over a million dollars. So he graduates 1980 uh, with, you know, between two and three million dollars right. net worth, U.S. dollars. And then he goes back to Japan because apparently the way he tells it, he promised his mom that he would come back to Japan after yep. he graduated. <laughs> <laughs> after he graduated. So he graduates UC Berkeley Economics 1980, goes back to Japan, has two or three million dollars, and he founds SoftBank in 1981. Correct. And then like the actual story of how he got the money to inflate the first tech bubble is, is kind of uh, muddled. But um, the the basic thing that I found from a Harvard inter, uh, business interview he gave, and this is, a, of course, his version of events, so mm -hmm. take him with a grain of salt. He was uh, interviewed by a young upstart investor. <laughs> that is true. We were talking about the Vision Fund. Like, you know, so $45 billion comes from um, uh, Saudi Arabia. I think $23 billion comes from SoftBank. Um, and then, like, mm -hmm. another $4 billion from Qualcomm, um, uh, Foxconn, right. Right. the the slavery uh, manufacturing company, uh, another $20 billion from Apple. Maybe not $20 billion, but some from Apple. Um, Sean's reading off yeah. Slack right now. <laughs> yes. Another SoftBank property. Uh, oh, yeah. It's only like $1.5 from Apple, Qualcomm. Sean. Well, like uh, collectively, it looks like Apple. I'm just reading off FT right now. Apple, Qualcomm, Foxconn, and another company called Sharp collectively contributed uh, about... Six billion, but the point so pretty you know pretty sizable. Yeah, but I guess the point was uh, some other graphic Yogi found was like seven billion. We just don't know where it came from, and we think it actually came from the uh, proceeds of the Jeffrey Epstein blackmail <laughs> network. <laughs> yeah, the graphic I found was from 2017 with the 45 billion from Saudi Arabia, the 28 billion from SoftBank, 15 from the what is it the Mubadala. Oh, yeah, an Abu Dhabi yeah, yes. UAE fund, I believe. Uh, a billion from Apple, uh, four billion from Foxconn, Qualcomm, and Sharp, and then seven billion. Just unknown. You know, mm -hmm. who knows where it came from? Just all from the U.S. Virgin Islands. <laughs> little, <laughs> just one account in Little St. James. Mm -hmm. uh, relatedly, at the uh, Burka Coalition facility, uh, this is in Yemen, de detainees described being interrogated while naked, bound and blindfolded, uh, sexually assaulted, and raped. At Bur Ahmed Prison, forces of the United Arab Emirates raided the facility and perpetrated sexual violence. In March 2018, nearly 200 detainees were stripped naked in a group while personnel from the UAE forcibly examined their anuses. During the search, multiple DN, uh, detainees were raped digitally and with tools and sticks. Hmm. The UAE is, of course, an um, ally in the Saudi coalition. Yeah, this is uh, the, the, the 45 wow, minutes. this shit's fucked up. That is fucking dark. Mm. I think, you know, one of the reasons why I mentioned why, like, this is the most amount of money we've talked about on the show is, like, people don't, you know, at least I didn't know much about SoftBank, period, and it's fucking a behemoth. Mm. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> if you, like, look up SoftBank commercials, it's like Tarantino is in a SoftBank commercial. There's a Brad Pitt commercial that was directed by Wes Anderson. Like, anytime you've heard about a Japanese commercial that uh, just fucking gave uh, American uh, uh, celebrity millions of dollars, yeah, it's SoftBank. The corruption runs deep. How deep? Fucking Tarantino's 
in, in on the action. Well, a group of experts investigated cases of sexual violence in the Burrica Migrant Detention Center in Aden. The facility we housed... trying to get the comedy back on track. Several hundred Eritrean, Ethiopian, and Somali migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees who had been rounded up and detained by the security belt forces. Security belt, of course, is coalition forces. Uh, conditions in the detention facility were dire. Rapes and sexual assault reportedly occurred in various parts of the facility, often in full view of other detainees, no. including family members and guards. Andy's morbid reality corner. Survivors and witnesses described to the experts how each night guards selected women and boys for abuse. One former detainee described a guard room where three beds with three beds where several guards assaulted several women simultaneously. Women were told to submit to rape or commit suicide. Others reported that individuals trying to resist or intervene were beaten, shot, or killed. At least uh, once, guards ordered hundreds of Ethiopian male detainees to stand naked for hours in front of dozens of Ethiopian female detainees as punishment. Reportedly, verbal threats of rape accompanied the punishment. But what about the crazy town butterfly <laughs> hybrid Masayoshi son version that you got, Andy? What about that? Why can't we play more of that and less of these Yemen? <laughs> That was actually what Masa said to the detainees. <laughs> Good song. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, here's uh, the actual... To get back to the story of Masa, in uh, 1992, Harvard Business Review interview, he says, When I first started the company, I only had two part-time workers in a small office. I got two Apple boxes. I stood up on them in the morning uh, to give a speech. I said to my two workers, you guys have to listen to me because I am the president of this company. In five years, I'm going to have $75 million in sales. In five years, I will be supplying 1,000 dealer outlets and will be the number one PC software distributor. Um, the two guys... Uh, both quit <laughs> and then he says uh, that was 1981 about a year and a half later we were supplying 200 dealer outlets now we supply 15,000 in 1992 in 10 years we've gone from two part-time employees um, to 570 employees uh, doing software distribution book and magazine publishing telephone uh, least cost routing system integration network computing blah 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 making about 350 million dollars and his SoftBank is originally a bank for software. Mm -hmm. He's like, okay, the PC revolution is here. I'm going to give people an outlet where they can get all these different softwares uh, for their, their... Listen, I know that most people would give shit to those two employees that left because the company became so successful. Mm -hmm. But I bet they heard that and went, I am not trying to work that hard. Yeah. <laughs> well, they were probably like, oh, yeah, this guy's insane. And uh, then that kind of pitch only works on just uh, fucking inbred Saudi royals with $45 <laughs> billion dollars to blow. Where did we explain that pitch where he, he talks to MBS for 45 minutes and he says, I have a one trillion dollar gift for you. You give me one hundred billion dollars and I will give you a trillion dollars. Yeah. It's a solid grip. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, yeah, it is just like you, you have to be like kind of not all uh, you don't have. You have to have zero street smarts right. in order to just give somebody forty five billion. You no, know it's better than one hundred billion dollars. <laughs> One trillion dollars. One common practice involved security forces abducting and raping women or threatening to as a way to extort money from their families and communities. Security forces repeatedly entered homes at nights and took at night and took women to rape. Community leaders estimated receiving steady reports of sexual violence every few nights. The authorities did not conduct investigations or make arrests in relation to these violations. I don't really know how to respond to that at all. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's dark as shit, but yeah. Andy's right. I mean, all this shit that I didn't know before this episode is f literally funneled through SoftBank, and that's fucked up. Well, they indirectly, I mean, the through the Vision Fund, right? 
a lot of their inflows are from Saudi mm -hmm. who are committing these atrocities. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the reason I keep mentioning these is that by taking their money, they're uh, legitimizing this horrendous regime. And it's very easy to just like tuck into the background all these human rights violations that the Saudis are committing um, as so many people want to do. And people keep coming back to Jamal Khashoggi, which, of course, was a terrible murder. But uh, that's only just a tiny tip of the iceberg right. in this uh, horrific genocide. And it's it's worth repeating that these are the people that, you know, these beloved billionaires are uh, justifying to themselves that it's okay to do business with the people who are yeah, doing these yeah. horrible, so like, horrible things and continue to do them. And they continue to, you know, he's promising a trillion dollars to this guy who's unleashing this hell in this corner of the world. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Like however outlandish the trillion dollar, I mean, it's probably not going to happen, but he's, what he's saying is like, I'm perfectly fine doing business yeah. with these people. Yeah. And I'm not going to use the clout of my otherwise still multi-billion dollar operation to curtail this behavior that's atrocious. It goes back to what Fujita said. There's no morality in money. It, how you get it is what's how you get it, it's not important. Having it is. And it's no. it, you know the reason I mentioned the Fujita side of this is cuz his idols are a samurai and a guy that literally think uh, uh the Jews of Osaka <laughs> are the reason why he's better at business. But so, like, to kind of, like, close out the bio and get us up to the present, you know, so the, the way he describes it is, according to the uh, the New York Times, he's starting the software distribution. Um, he's um, he, he sets up a booth at a consumer trade show. And uh, what, what he says is, according to this New York Times article in 1995, he offered uh, software companies free space to display their products. The booth was mobbed, but the retailers that attended that show dealt directly with the software manufacturers, bypassing Mr. Son, the middleman. I probably made back one-twentieth of the cost of my booth, uh, he told the Harvard Business Review. After that, many people were laughing. Couldn't even pay the babes. <laughs> <laughs> After that, many people were laughing at me. They said, that guy's really dumb. He's a nice guy, but dumb. Um, and, and so... The way he actually goes on to, to explain uh, to the Harvard Business Review, he says, you know, I made back one twenty of my money, but he says that actually one person did call me from Osaka a few weeks after the show. He said, we're starting a big PC shop and we need software. Please come and talk to me. I said, sorry, but I'm too busy to make the trip right now. Actually, I wasn't busy, but I didn't have the money to go to Osaka. He says, my company's name is Joshin Denkai. Have you heard of us? I said, no, I didn't know the company. It turns out it's the third largest home electronics dealer in Japan. He said, please ask Sharp, was mm -hmm. the company he sold the electronic dictionary to. Right. Uh, ask who we are. If you make up your mind to come to Osaka, we'd be happy to see you. Um, he says, you know, he did ask Sharp, and Sharp told him, hey, go out there. Sharp recommended them, um, you know. And so he goes out. He meets the third largest um, home electronics dealer in Japan. He actually manages to say to them, uh, I need exclusive purchasing rights for all PC software for Joshin Denkai. Right. And, uh, you know, he manages through force of personality and through his connections to Sharp and other people to say, Joshin Denkai says, okay, yeah, we will give you exclusive rights. And then suddenly he has, uh, they have the biggest stores specializing in PCs in Japan. He has exclusive rights to their software all of a sudden. And then he tells Harvard Business, after I got Joshin Denkai, I went to many other department stores and electronic shops. Uh, have you seen Joshin Denkai? They're the largest PC dealer in Japan now. And do you know why they're so successful? Because 
because they have the software and I have the exclusive on that software. Mm -hmm. So once he gets this Justin Denkai account, which he does get from this supposedly failed trading show right, right. and from his previous connections, then it's just a snowball because you've got the third largest electronics, you have exclusive software rights to them, and then you can sell to everybody else based on that. So, you know, this is how he builds his fortune throughout the 1980s and uh, has the growth we, we mentioned beforehand. Yeah, and uh, this is how he becomes the richest person in the world for three days at one point. <laughs> right, because, you know, he grows... He, he also gets the moniker the Bill Gates of Japan during this period mm -hmm. because of this growth that Sean McCarthy is referring to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, like, uh, according to... He also gets into the Japanese um, uh, phone business. Like, um, Japan's uh, state-run telecom is privatized in 1985. So he starts uh, Japan Telecom in 1984. It's now SoftBank Telecom. Mm -hmm. Later, he gets... He's, like, friends with Steve Jobs. In 2008, he gets exclusive rights to sell the iPhone in Japan. Uh, so he, you know, gets a big, big chunk of the Japanese cellular market. But I just want to mention here, according to Wired... Uh, he, uh, so in the 1990s, you know, by the 90s, he's rich. By the late 80s, he's rich. In the 1990s, SoftBank blew billions on uh, Ashai TV, Asia Global Crossing, Sky Perfect, and a throng of dot-com dogs, including Cosmo.com, More.com, SportsBrain, and WebVam. <laughs> web van and of course all of these things exploded with the dot-com crash and um, uh, cost him as we mentioned 70 billion dollars of net worth but i guess my point in mentioning all that is we look at the situation today where he's inflating we work he's inflating uber and all these other things mm -hmm. and he did the same fucking thing in the 90s he inflated all these dot-com dogs and he lost 70 billion of net worth so you do worry about deja vu history repeats itself He's certainly large enough at, by the time of the late 90s to do his part, mm -hmm. along with other venture capitalists mm -hmm. and uh, private equity and hedge funds, mm -hmm. to bid up all of those assets in the tech sector. Right. And like one of his successful ventures is he starts Yahoo Japan in 1996 as a joint venture with Yahoo. He goes out to the California and he meets Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo, and just gives him $100 million when he had like 10 employees, <laughs> you know, because his eyes were strong sure, or whatever right, else right. the case may be. But um, but I think that kind of brings us up to the present, you know, where it's like, of course, there's a million different investments we could go through. But that's the story you need. That's what you need to know as to how he got this money is, you know, and of course, in the year 2000, he invests in, year God damn it, 2000. He invests in Alibaba uh, and makes, you know, 60 billion some return. Right. So uh, he's, you know, so dominant. And then now he goes back on the road and he gets this vision fund. And the, the vision fund is kind of the big thing that they're doing right now. And he has great burns on Twitter when someone asks him, hey, is your, your hairline's receding? He said, my hairline's not receding. I am advancing. <laughs> <laughs> I think about this guy, he's ex exceedingly charming, but the devil is yeah. a charming motherfucker. I guess with the time we have left, we can talk a bit more about um, the vision fund and what's actually going on with these, this $100 billion fund. Yeah, so there's ten ten members of this. Uh, half half of them from uh, Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs, and then the other half are various uh, people that have worked with uh, Masayoshi-san and a few other places. And like Masayoshi-san's main sort of enforcer on the board is this guy named Nariv Misra, mm -hmm. and he's been presiding over these sort of internal divisions in the company about. Um, sorry, it's Rajiv Misra. Sorry about that. Continue. Oh. So, yeah, you know, Rajiv, Rajiv yeah. Misra. Mm -hmm. I just like that um, for 
for uh, sorry, Wired magazine interviewed uh, Rajiv Misra, and according to the person who wrote the article, uh, Misra was vaping throughout the entire <laughs> interview. <laughs> so this guy running the uh, largest private fund in history uh, really can't put down the jewel long enough to talk to Wired. Yeah, and the 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 Vision Fund is just like so much more worrying to me than WeWork or Uber mm-hmm. or any of their individual investments. Because, like we said, it's just sort of like the same, some of the same structural problems writ large. Right. The $100 billion, largest uh, private pool of money ever assembled. Yeah. Um, there's no overs- There's very little oversight in terms of like uh, financial authorities mm-hmm. in the US, UK, or Japan right. over what's going on with all this money. And the pitch for the plan is that it's a 300 year plan. That's the concept of the Vision Fund. Yeah, they have a 300-year plan where a significant amount of it is underwritten off oil revenue. Mm-hmm. So you seem like you have like the ideas of the past. Right, right, right. <laughs> like something we should be moving beyond yeah. in a very broad sense is actually fueling its rise. Right. And I mean, like when you break down Masayoshi-san, he's a man that uh, owns uh, Boston Dynamics, a company making robots... Uh, he owns all of ARM, which does all of the microchips, and he believes that singularity will be good for humanity. I mean, if that's not the workings for the uh, future evil dictator of tomorrow, then I don't know what is. Right. I just wanted to read this quote from Wired about the Vision Fund. The investment hypothesis underpinning the Vision Fund centers around scale, a winner-take-all strategy. They target companies with 50 or 80% market share and overinvest it to ensure the, to enable these companies to grow fast and, lo- and globally. That's something I learned from Masa, Misra says. It is more important to grow fast. Is it more important to grow fast or be efficient? Efficient means getting your costs right and your profits right. It's not about counting the number of dollars you spend on stationery that's important and building step-by-step in the U.S. or India, our view is that companies need to scale first. Once you scale, you'll get everything else right. The global barriers are coming down, so if you don't become global fast, someone else will do it. And you see that again and again in all these fucking unicorn startups where it's like they don't care that WeWork is just burning cash or Uber. They don't care that they're not doing anything efficiently. They just think, okay, once we get 80% market share... And what we're seeing with kind of the coming dot-com tech collapse is people are saying the rope is running out. They're like, you can't just grow market share forever. You have to be able to turn a profit at some point. One of the one of the measures that I really like to look at for the stock market is one called the Schiller PE ratio, mm-hmm. or the ratio of it's a it's kind of a moving a long term moving average of the price of the stock market okay. relative to the equity or how much the the, com- the underlying companies are worth. And the on- the highest point was right on the eve of the dot com bust. So that was about, that was when the ratio is about 43 times. And it's currently at the high, the second highest ever level of about 30. And it's rising. The only other time it's like, it's basically at the same level as Black Tuesday right. in 1929, right before the great stock market crash. Hmm. And um, Schiller himself, the economist who made this thing, would, right. would probably dissuade anyone from using it as an indicator of recession or as just an indicator of stock performance. But it's nonetheless like really troublesome to look at this chart where like, okay, the only other time this happened is when there was a massive tech boom. Yeah. Uh, Tech, uh, tech asset boom. Right. Like he's spent, you know, billions um, now and in the lead up to the, it's like, he's a guy who got rich and then dumped all of his money into um, 
inflating the values of tech not once but twice so you know i mean it's like this guy that uh not everybody has heard of who's one of the most consequential wealthy people in history in the sense that he's managed to convince you know mbs and all these other wealthy people to like give me the largest investment fund in history and uh i'm going to inflate my second tech bubble you've just got so much fucking money and you just bid up the price of all of these tech stocks and Eventually, the bottom falls out just because, you know, this is, uh, what's the term, irrational exuberance? Yeah. Also, you know. also Schiller. Yes. Actually. Irrational mm-hmm. exuberance. These uh, these tech stocks, the same as all the fucking dot-coms he bought in the 90s, and now that all the apps he's buying now, many of them have no possible way of making money. So, you know, uh, Forbes says he's worth now about uh, $18.6 billion, so he doesn't quite get to lose $70 right, right. Billion this time, but I could see him losing $12 billion yeah. or something like that. Um, and I did just want to mention, I forgot to say this earlier, according to his biography, uh, when he's, uh, when his company's growing in the 1980s, he's actually sidelined for a little while. Hmm. Um, oh yes. Uh, according to the New York times, he's actually sidelined from 1983 to 1986. Mr. Sohn had to relo- relinquish the presidency of SoftBank when he was hospitalized with hepatitis with a phone mm. fax and a computer in his room. He says he continued to give advice returning to the helm after he recovered. And that seems to be like everybody's profile of him is he's like not actually a good manager, but he's like a charismatic enough salesman. So yeah. And that and he's persistent. He won't stop pestering you until he gets his way. Mm-hmm. He said that, you know, with Fujita, that he gave like a hundred phone calls before he was like fuck it I'm gonna fly to him mm-hmm. like that you, you know even if you dislike the person you're like oh, that motherfucker's probably gonna get the job done right there's also this um, actually I guess we just missed it this uh, New York Times uh, profile of kind of the fallout of SoftBank um, and it talks about how SoftBank will just pump money into startups that will actually have the side effect of devastating uh, existing companies. For Mm -hmm. instance, uh, it starts out with the story of this hotel uh, in New Delhi that was uh, running pretty well. um, And then uh, someone from a new startup approached the owner of the hotel and said that they wanted to um, help them make it more of a a business destination. Uh, And the startup was for like luxury uh, business hotels. And so they promised him that he would get... um, a certain number of rooms rented out to business people, right. whether or not people actually use the rooms. Mm-hmm. And then as the company slowly went under, um, the hotel was left high and dry because they had hitched themselves to this wagon. Right. And no one was actually right. going through this startup because the startup ended up being completely, yeah. uh, you know, worthless. And um, basically like one of the side effects then of SoftBank is they're, you know, propping up uh, all these uh, startups that, uh, including, you know, things like Uber, where they upend other industries mm-hmm. while turning people into contractors, but then those contractors get no benefits and so on and so forth. For instance, of course, in California, Uber is fighting a new California law that forces um, uh, Uber to give its uh, drivers health insurance, mm. which, wow, so unjust. But uh, <laughs> it, it's... Um, yeah, and, you know, this guy, uh, SoftBank is... You know, at the yeah, I don't know if we covered this, but Masayoshi, one of his practices, if you want to, if he wants to buy your company and you say no, he just invests the money in other companies, or it's like a threat during the negotiations, right, right. And I mean, like, you know, with with a man that has billions of dollars, how are you going to fight that? 
Yeah, I do like how we like challenged ourselves. What if we destroyed WeWork? And now we challenge ourselves. What if we destroyed the global economy? <laughs> what if we took down the largest investment fund in history? I mean, that was my goal from the start. <laughs> <laughs> well, we wouldn't have as many episodes to do, Sean. And I think that that's the best benefit from it. Yeah. Um, and, and just to kind of go over, uh, we should mention his br- his younger brother also became a billionaire as the chairman of a company called Gung Ho. So, you know, stuff we miss with SoftBank, we'll be able to follow up there. Right. Gung Ho is the maker of the world's best-selling smartphone ga- game, Puzzles and Dragons. Oh, that sounds uh, completely legitimate. Masayoshi Son was an early investor in his brother's company. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and, and then just from The Economist... Uh, he gives this speech where he talks about how we at SoftBank and the investors in SoftBank, we are the new gentry at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Right. And that really does give you an idea of this guy's mind where he thinks the gentry at the start of the Industrial Revolution were the good guys. <laughs> you know, the people who drove the proletariat into the factories and uh, uh, destroyed uh, all of kind of the harmony uh, that comes with, you know, being able to control your own labor and these sorts of things. And, well, it does uh, kind of make sense with uh, the results in California. So mm-hmm. they like they lost that state Supreme Court case, mm-hmm. making it so Uber Uber drivers could be classified as employees right. that would need health benefits and so forth. Mm. And like pretty soon after that, Uber's valuation dropped. <laughs> 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 it's predicated on just eradicating workers' rights. Right. Cobra effect. Yeah, that's the entire independent contractor model is just we're disrupting like the fucking Wagner Act from the New Deal. Mm-hmm. All the things that says you can unionize and you have to be paid minimum wage in this shit. Right. Um, but it is like, yeah, he thinks they're the new gentry of the Industrial Revolution. He talks about, uh, according to The Economist, within 30 years, he predicts the world will be populated by billions of robots, many of them more intelligent than humans. And so he says, we're Great. The, we're the new gentry of the Industrial Revolution, the new Industrial Revolution, the robots, the singularity. It is our job to control these robots. But that's a fucking terrifying vision. And they have to control these robots because actually in those Boston Dynamics videos mm-hmm. with the fancy robots doing the obstacle courses, they're not actually automated. There's someone with a joystick behind the camera. Right. <laughs> and apparently they fall over way more often in person than they do in the YouTube sure. videos. Oh, yeah. That's like, a highlight video. Even even actual robot robotics professionals mm-hmm. would mm-hmm. are often critical of like these like singularity mm-hmm. people. Yeah. They're just like yeah. You know, in very controlled conditions in labs, yeah, we've gotten robots to do some pretty amazing things. But, like, they're often the first to tell you that, like, like robot, like, designed to pick apples or something still doesn't pick up, like, 30, 50% sure, of sure, them. Yeah. Yeah. I will argue, though, Masasan is less terrifying if it turns out he's a pump-and-dump scamster, which is, I think, my read on this. Sure. I think I think this thing is going down. But if his vision is real, where it's, like, 30 years, billions of robots, and we control all of them, that is fucking terrifying. Just like, you know, the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund, where we've read off, you know, a litany of war crimes and we could spend another three hours. You know, it's like this guy and a bunch of private industry controls all the robots that, you know, do all the tasks and uh, manage every facet of our society. Like, that's a dystopian fucking mega Orwellian future. So the idea that he's just like ripping off a Saudi Saudi investment fund is much more comforting and I think probably more realistic. I mean, these these promises have gone back since, you know, even before computers where it's like 
with each technological iteration where you say, oh, it's going to eliminate, you know, this kind of work. Well, right. then what the work shifts to is like instead of hand copying, you know, uh, balance sheets, now you have to set up a spreadsheet like you just have to go into the deeper and deeper levels of the technology to make it work. And so it's not nothing's ever eliminating work. You're always just going to keep going yeah. deeper into the system. Right. And, and like even, you know, on the eve of this, like as this climate crisis, sorry to bring it up again gets even gets even more intense like so all the green new deal stuff that's going to require tons and tons of work mm -hmm. that robots have so far not been able to do mm. like physical tasks engineering tasks and all that that we would never trust to a robot and yeah. so like uh, you know the jobs are there's no shortage of jobs we can have as many jobs or as few as we want mm -hmm. With yeah. like something like a federal jobs guarantee, mm. and there's and like the robots can't be counted on to build dams and new new farm work and stuff like that. Yeah, and there's always like eventualities that you can't predict, right? And that's why the idea of like full automation, even when socialists uh, claim that as a goal, it's uh, complete nonsense because you can never make a system so complete that it can predict all eventualities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we we better hope MBS doesn't listen to this episode and start demanding his money back. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we need what we do need to do is figure out how to short SoftBank before we release this. Mm -hmm. I think that'd be good. Uh, and with that, this has been Grubstickers. I'm Yogi Powell. I'm Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Check us out on Patreon. We'll be back next week. Bye.